From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiotakis with the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. For 90 years, the Los Angeles Sentinel has been a voice for the city's black community who felt ignored by mainstream outlets. It was, as the word Sentinel indicates, keeping watch on the city's institutions and businesses and how they treated the black residents of L.A., Kenneth Thomas was one of the Sentinel's former publishers. Long before the civil rights movement was even thought of, our publisher published the seminal issue of the L.A. Sentinel urging our black citizens not to spend where they could not work. That was uh, initiated because there was a department store that made substantially all of its uh, profit off of the African-American community, and they refused to hire African-Americans. Kenneth Thomas, the former publisher. That, by the way, is from a documentary produced years ago by filmmaker Keith O'Derrick. The Sentinel has a long and storied history covering events such as the Civil Rights Movement, the uprisings in Watts, and after the Rodney King verdict in the 90s, the O.J. Simpson trial, too. But what about now, at age 90, at a time when newspapers are shutting down and or shifting online, and journalism is floundering in an age of social media and fake news. Erin Aubrey Kaplan is an author and contributing opinion writer at the Los Angeles Times. Her father, Larry, was a longtime columnist at The Sentinel. Hi, Erin. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. It's great to be back. There was another newspaper, the California Eagle, that was run by and for African-Americans before The Sentinel began in 1933. But, but The Sentinel became the most widely circulated, right? I mean... Why do you think that was, and and what did it do, do you think, to capture the eyeballs of its readers? Like the Eagle before it, it was a a fixture on Central Avenue, which was, you know, the east side, which was the black part of town where my father and other folks grew up. The Sentinel was not just a paper, not just covering things, not just giving you information about life in, in black neighborhoods. But also was a political arm. It was a it was whole movement, you know, back in the forties, you know, the Sentinel was part of an effort to boycott stores. You know, it ran campaigns. It was an instrument of justice. And so, like a lot of, you know, black press outlets throughout the country. So it was very important, particularly in LA where, you know, political organizing was just LA is so spread out geographically, the Sentinel was really an organizing principle. It kept the community together, even though they were, they were pretty much you know, 90% of Black LA was around Central Avenue, but but there were others scattered, you know, throughout the city and throughout the county. So it was a very important sort of organizing um, uh, tool. And, you know, I, I know that, that there are other Black publications all over the country in other cities. I, I remember, I come from Alabama, there was the Birmingham Times and the, the Birmingham World, which were, I mean, just predominant in in the community especially during the civil rights movement and and i wonder you know when it comes to issues like justice social justice civil rights colonists like your father were writing from the experience of of being black in the city when when people of color felt like they were being ignored right i mean what did that read like how how did you see the work that your dad was doing at the time oh it's really it was really touchstone for me and you know it's interesting i always make this distinction there's the black press which I consider, you know, uh, which is the Sentinel. My father was, a, you know, certainly part of the black press, and I am a black reporter in mainstream press for the most part. Yeah. That consciousness, that mission of um, quality coverage, equal coverage, I carry whatever, you know, to whatever publication I'm writing for. 
So, and my father, you know, the, the column was where he kind of, everything kind of came together. He could kind of report on what he was doing. He could, he could say in his own voice, not just what the issues were, but what he felt about them, what he felt, you know, what were the, what were the moral aspects? What were the, what, what were the consequences for black people? What were, you know, like all these different things that he couldn't say in other areas, you know, of his work. The Sentinel was also, fa- is also a family. Everyone knows each other. My family uh, and Danny Bakewell's family, the publisher, both come, came from New Orleans. You know, there, so there, there's a history um, of, of community within the Sentinel that was very important to him and to the readers, too. Pew Research did a poll, Aaron, a, a couple years back about trust in the media. And something that, that stood out to me, it found that black people actually trust the media more than white or Latino people by a sizable amount. I mean, it's 33% uh, among uh, black people, 27% um, for white people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think black people trust the media, even if it's a little bit more? I'm actually surprised to hear that. And I would just say that maybe because the media lately, the mainstream media um, has been dubbed an enemy of the state by a lot of conservatives, maybe that, that puts it Maybe black folk feel more allied with media now than they have in the past. I don't really know, but I, I, I am somewhat encouraged to hear that there's more, actually more trust, maybe because it's been so demonized and uh, black folks certainly know how that feels. Maybe because the media has actually been solidly reporting on, you know, things like you know, incidents of police brutality and the whole, you know, fight over critical race theory. These things are actually, you know, being regularly reported on it, maybe that, you know, encourages a lot of black people and makes them feel somewhat differently about the media at this moment. But I'm just speculating. This is going to sound like a weird question. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to be scandalous or anything. I, I, I just really, I'm curious about it from, you know, in the black community, can white people cover black issues? Reporters, you know, have their own body of work, lives that they lead. Right. are in communities where they are, right? Sure. And a lot of times, you know, we, we still, even in the year 2023, we still live in pretty segregated societies. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, you know, can can a white reporter cover a black community? Or even or even vice versa? Yeah, I mean, it can, sure, that can happen. I think, uh, I think in terms of beat coverage, the geographic beats, I think that doesn't tend to happen. But there are so many more things to report on when you say, covering black people, you know, that's not, it's not just a community. It's, it's issues, it's matters of race. It's, it's, you know, which are now, as we know, as we can see a part of everybody's lives are in all of our politics. So I think that reporters, you know, have to cover what's important and it's obviously important. You know, the whole, the whole um, racial dynamic in this country is really, it's no longer a beat. It's no longer a um, kind of a discreet topic. It is everywhere, and it always has been, I think. But I think reporters are maybe discovering that. Uh, there are reporters now that have the the democracy beat. Well, the democracy beat is just about, you know, are we going hmm. to have be a multiracial democracy or not? And that involves, certainly involves Black folk, but it involves all of us. Um, but I think in the meantime, you know, the kind of the bread and butter geographic beats, I just don't think they're being covered that well extensively, in, like in L.A., which is really large and always been hard to cover we we don't have we don't have enough coverage but then we never have had enough coverage but yeah we better we better have white reporters who can do this and 
because we don't have enough black reporters to do it. I mean, the world is everyone, right? I mean, it, what what affects the white community affects the black community, affects the Latino community. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Yeah. I think that I think we all are connected to racial issues, to black issues. I think there's a great resistance to that. Um, and so there's a great tension right now, I guess, in media coverage, but just in our country, period. You know, of course, it would be great if, if we didn't need a black press at all. If if the country was covered as one country with racial dynamics being part of the country, but we're still working towards that. So the the Sentinel and others like it are are necessary. I, I'm thinking of the NAACP's magazine is called The Crisis, and, when it's, and it's mm-hmm. it's been around for a hundred plus years, and it's still called The Crisis. So you know, let's just say we haven't merged yet. Aaron Aubrey Kaplan, author, contributing opinion writer over at the LA Times, of course, our guest today here on Greater LA. Aaron, great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. Great to talk to you. Still to come in this week of love, a new opera performance that pierces you in song. That's yours after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with more of Greater L.A. on KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Valentine's Day, of course, may have just passed, but love is still in the air at the Long Beach Opera. Because this is no ordinary dream. This is a love story. And who better to officiate than the God of That's Lucas Steele and Philip Bullock rehearsing a new opera called The Romance of the Rose. It's been described as genre smashing and will be making its world premiere this week as part of the Long Beach Opera's 2023 programming. Philip Bullock, who you just heard singing away in French, is with us today, as is Kate Soper, who wrote the opera. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Kate. I know The Romance of the Rose is based on a medieval poem, right, mm-hmm. of the same yeah. name. Tell us about the poem and how and why you decided to turn it into an opera. Uh, sure. Well, it is this 13th century allegorical courtly love French poem that was written in two parts. Um one person wrote this sort of strange uh, love story set in a garden and then either didn't finish it or ended on a cliffhanger. And then 40 years later, a second author came along and quote unquote finished it and added about four times as much material that goes into a ton of just strange digressions about nature and sex and love and gender and war. Um, so I think for me, when I first uh, read it in some 
you know, medieval music seminar in grad school, I just thought it just seemed so operatic because it covers so much ground under the ostensible guise of a love story. And you wanted to do this, what, three years ago, right? And then, oh, what happened three years ago? Let me think here. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. going to premiere April 2020. I don't know why that didn't work out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Philip was in the original cast as well. But we were really on the brink of premiere. We think we were about two weeks out. Um, and then, of course, you know, everything shut down. Everything shut down. You actually sang all the parts and put them up on YouTube to keep the momentum going, though, right? You didn't, you didn't want the, the, the flame to dim. I did play around. I can't sing all the parts. I'm, I'm a soprano. doesn't sound like that now because I have a cold. But, um, <laughs> but I dabbled in, in a couple of things and made some little, um, you know, YouTube distance videos with, with friends from the opera. So I did keep it alive, and I did end up, you know, revising it a bit in the hopes that eventually it would get a premiere. You're a soprano, Kate. Philip, your range is wild. I mean, you're listed as a <laughs> baritone and a falsetto, which makes, I mean, it blows my mind. Um, how did you discover those two very different sides of your voice? Well, so, you know, funny enough, the falsetto in my voice was has always been a party trick. All through college, we used <laughs> really? to imitate sopranos and mezzo-sopranos. You know, you, uh, after class, we would have a few cocktails and just <laughs> make fun of either the famous Sopranos of old or, like, some of our colleagues and just, like, imitate their voices. And who knew I'd be doing it on stage for real? <laughs> I mean, give us give us an idea of what a falsetto is, right? Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, anytime you hear men imitating women or just imitating that sound of an opera singer, uh whoo! You know, anything like that. <laughs> but now you go really low as well, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Ah, wow, that is quite a range. <laughs> that is quite a range. I think a falsetto is Mick Jagger singing the song <laughs> Fool to Cry. Daddy, you're a fool to cry. Do you remember that? I don't think that I don't think those people were singing falsetto. I think they're just like pushing their voices into the high register. The the thing about Philip's voice is it's just floating beautifully on the top there. It's not like that kind of like wailing, right. you know, like rock tenor. Well, also if you think of Prince, I think Prince oh, gives Prince. Oh, absolutely. Very good of course. Falsetto, yes. Yeah. Who are you playing, um, Philip, and, and and how are you using that range to portray your part? So his name is the god of love. So, you know, if you think of Cupid, you know, usually when we think of Cupid, we think of the the little cherub, the little baby with the arrows in his back. Uh, Cupid in this poem, the god of love is basically Cupid, but a grown adult. And we are shooting these arrows or throwing these darts into the heart of someone for them to fall in love. So so the, sh uh, the character itself, like, it plays with these ideas of gender and expression in terms of the the chest voice and the high voice and you know of being of of love and the the kind of wild uh turns it can take inside a person or can do to a person kate before before you you all let us go I, I, you know what what's it like putting on a you know different kind of opera i mean because people have sort of the the rigid expectation of what an opera is right and you're trying to find a new audience as well. How how do you do that? Um, I think that it's it's not so much a challenge trying to buck convention because I think that's what we're all doing all the time, just being artists alive in you know twenty twenty three. But I think there is a challenge in getting people to come and trying to you know 
talk them into um, an experience that maybe doesn't sound like something they'd enjoy. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I try to I put humor in my work because I feel like that is a good, a great, like, relaxer and a great um, way to just reassure the audience I'm talking to them and I'm trying to make them laugh and trying to have them laugh with me at the kind of ridiculousness of some of the situations that come up in opera. And, you know, and then there's um, moments of just really powerful masses of noise and sound that I hope will be exciting, you know, electric guitars and, um, and uh, you know, electronic vocal processing, which you, I think, don't normally see in opera. So, yeah, there definitely are things to enjoy I would say, even if you don't consider yourself an opera fan, that um, you might give this one a chance if you just want to see something new or, you know, have a laugh at the opera. It is most definitely exciting. I will say that. Well, it's been exciting talking to you both. Seriously, it sounds like so much fun and and, uh, action-packed, as you mentioned, and and, an interesting, certainly, turn. Um, Kate Soper, Philip Bullock, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us and hope to see some of your listeners at the opera. Yeah, yeah. The Long Beach Opera producing the world premiere of The Romance of the Rose in San Pedro this weekend. Information at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Onward with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. The next few days here in the LA art world are huge. Four shows, count them four, bringing together artists from not only here at home, but also from around the country and around the world. And they're all open to the public. There is Freeze at Santa Monica's airport at the Barker Hangar. There's Felix in Hollywood at the Roosevelt Hotel. The LA art show at the convention center downtown. And there's a thing called Spring Break happening in Culver City. Now, gridlocked freeways aren't the only thing separating all these shows, because they are all over the place. Lindsay Preston Zappas is founder and editor-in-chief of Contemporary Art Review LA. She joins me now for this portrait of the landscape of LA's art show weekend. This is a lot, Lindsay. It's a lot, Steve. Like, truly so much. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a clever way to, like, like find the common thread here. Maybe, you know, they're all, like, maybe grocery uh-huh. stores or something like that. Ooh, what, yeah? ooh, okay. Okay, I'm going to use a gym analogy. I like the grocery stores, but I was thinking about gyms. Okay. Okay, Okay. so Freeze, I feel like, is like Equinox, right? It's like expensive. It's exclusive. You can't really afford it. Uh, You know, it's very bespoke. Uh, Felix, I think, might be a little trendier, a little more local, sexier, Maybe like a hot yoga class or something like that. <laughs> All right, hot yoga. Um, and then I would say spring break is like a little more of a DIY situation. So maybe like it's a little hiking club at Griffith Park. It's sort of like free for everyone to attend. It's a little more open. Okay. And then LA Art Show, you know, has been here the longest. Maybe it's like LA Fitness. So it's something that's like LA specific. <laughs> it's been around a while. 
But as these other fairs are kind of coming in, it has to try and keep up with these boutique gyms and the hiking clubs. So it's trying to like offer new classes. Maybe it has Pilates now, something like that. All right, we've got to unpack all of this, Lindsay. Yeah, so it's the, a lot. <laughs> the, the freeze is still somewhat new to LA. It happens in, mm. in other cities as well, but for the fourth time is happening here. Tell us more about the vibe and, and what's worth seeing. This year's fair has over 120 galleries from 22 countries across the world. Um, And we'll see, you know, a bit more high end, a bit more blue chip. Um, You know, a lot of the artists showing at Freeze are more advanced in their careers. The prices for all the artwork are going to be higher. And then, you know, I think since the fair is more commercial and a bit more global, it has to work a bit harder to kind of have this L.A. specific edge that actually responds to the community here. So they have a focus section at the fair, which will feature L.A. galleries. And then this year, they've also curated a handful of off-site kind of sculptural shows at significant locations on the west side. And those, I should mention, don't require a ticket. So that's kind of a hot tip. All right. That's nice to know. Um, Let's talk about Felix. Felix seems a little more laid back. What are some highlights there? Yeah, definitely a bit more laid back. It's at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. And the fair booths are actually hotel rooms at the hotel. So, you know, the ground level opens up to the pool. So you're kind of in and out on these cabanas, in and out, kind of going through the rooms. And since the booths are rooms, we're not seeing art on a white perfect wall with perfect lighting. You know, galleries are putting art in showers and like on the TV stands and outside by the pool. So it's definitely a different kind of buzzier situation. Uh, And the fair was started by an L.A.-based gallery and also an art collector here in L.A. So I think Felix definitely has a view more of L.A. hometown. I should also mention that my magazine, Carla, is a media sponsor of the fair. So if you're at the fair, you can pick up our newest issue of the magazine, which you should see spread around the fair. All right. To the convention center we go in the South Park yeah, area. Yeah, cross town in the traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the LA Arch has been around since the 90s. What, what are you looking forward to see? Yeah, I'm always interested to see sort of the angle of the fair and how they're kind of making it fresh and new each year. Um, they have always this non-commercial section that they call Diverse Art LA. And this year, this section is focused on climate-based artworks with nine artists included in this section. And I'm really excited about the muralist Judith Baca, who's included. You may know her work from just around Los Angeles, but she's going to have this double-sided mural called When God Was a Woman that she actually started in the 80s. So I think that'll be really exciting to check out. Okay. All right. Well, then, and we talked about spring break, which <laughs> puts something else in my mind. But anyway, you called it the hiking club, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what makes spring break different? This is going on in Culver City, right? You know, spring break, they actually have waived the entry fee for participating artists and galleries, which is really significant for an art fair. Uh, And then it's more artist and curator led. So artists are putting on their own booths. Uh, Curators are doing more experimental projects. It's definitely less sales focused than the other fairs. And it has a more kind of DIY scrappier vibe than the other fairs. All right. Before you let us go... uh I should note that the ticket prices here can range from $30 to upwards of $100, $200, um, $30 for the art show. Freeze, I think, is a couple hundred dollars. So yeah. Do you do you read into these ticket prices as signifying anything? I mean, about the, the value, the perceived value of the art on display or, or who's buying these tickets? You know, the ticket prices can kind of denote, like, who do they want to come to this, right? Yeah. If a fair is $200... 
they don't want just kind of everyone in LA to attend. So it might be a little more focused on on serious art collectors who will pay that $200 to like buy, you know, a famous work of art. Uh, but, you know, the lower priced ones, the ones that are more like 30 bucks, 50 bucks, I feel like those are, are a little more community focused and they want everyone in LA to come be a part of it and check out what's happening. But again, they're all going on at the same time <laughs> this week, right? Yeah. yeah it's a <laughs> it's lot. It's a lot. Lindsay Preston's app is founder and editor in chief of Contemporary Art Review. LA. Lindsay, thanks. Thanks so much, Steve. That's going to do it for us today. Next week, a group of Ukrainian filmmakers have spent months here in LA to make art and to talk about their country at war. We're going to talk about that next week as veganism catches on. NoHo, North Hollywood, is one center of vegan marketing and cooking and eating. That's yours next week as well on Greater LA. Share your thoughts with us or maybe even share a story. Grab the podcast anytime at kcrw.com slash Greater LA or, of course, get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search for KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Sue Margulies, Phil Richards, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Mike Vogel, and Christian Bordall all helped assemble this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your ear. Have a great night. <laughs>